If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. As you're turning there, I'll give you a heads up on some upcoming messages. On September 9th, uh, the Sunday after Labor Day weekend, we'll start back in our study in the book of Psalms. Uh, We'll have about 13 or so more messages, so I think we can squeeze all that in before Christmas. And then first of the year, we'll start a new series, uh, probably 1 Peter. This week and next week, before we get to the Psalms, I want to talk about the church. Specifically, I want to talk about some of the most basic, most fundamental things that we do as Christians. Things that identify us with Jesus and with his people. It's sort of how a jersey functions for a a team. How a jersey identifies a player with his team. I think we see this in Acts 2. Let's start reading in verse 37. We're picking up in the middle of the story. Peter is preaching a message in Jerusalem. And most of chapter 2 has been the record of his message, or at least a, a Cliff Notes version of what he preached. And verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to explain to them, uh, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, there are many ways to study this passage of Scripture. There are many themes that you could draw out. You could look at the different action items, the different verbs that are mentioned here and what we've read, and uh, there are at least a dozen. We've done that before. Another way we could look at this passage is to be to focus on a little bit of it, like verse 42, which tells us four main things. We sometimes refer to them as the four pillars of the foundation of the church. We've done that one. We've done other things as well in Acts chapter 2. It's a frequent passage for us because, well, it's such a watershed moment and it's such a hallmark description. It's potent. It's loaded. What I'd like to do today is to focus on three things that we see in Acts chapter 2. Things about coming to Jesus and identifying with him. Three B's. The first is belief. Belief. Hopefully you saw that. There's belief in Acts chapter 2. They respond to Peter's preaching with belief. Of course, there has to be preaching that precedes that belief, according to Romans chapter 10. 
How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And so Peter preaches to them. He proclaims the crucified and risen Lord. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's the heartbeat of his message. There's the centerpiece of well, not just what he's preaching here, but his, his very hope, his belief, his identity. Like Paul says, this is of first importance that Jesus died, was buried, and he was raised on the third day. He proclaims the crucified and risen Lord. He proclaims guilt as well. You see that. You killed him. He's preaching to a big crowd there. As he says, you killed them. Some of them have more or less culpability in the death of Jesus than others. But, but we, in a sense, have all crucified the Lord of glory with our sin. So he says, you've crucified him. He says that more than once. If we fast forward to what we saw already in verse 37, there's conviction. It says they're cut to the heart. I feel like their hearts have been ripped opened. They have a sense of helplessness. And so they respond to Peter by saying, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. To repent means to give up on self. To give up on a a self-salvation program. To give up trusting in self. To see sin for what it is. To begin to hate sin as we should to turn from it and to turn to a solution in Christ. Faith is the counterpart to repentance. Repentance and faith. Repentance and believe. Repent and believe. You see elsewhere in the book of Acts, here it doesn't say repent and believe. It says repent and be baptized. But the belief is clearly implied because, notice verse 38, it's in the name of Jesus Christ that there is the forgiveness of sins. It's not meaning here that just quoting his name, claiming his name means we're forgiven. His name represents all that he is and all that he's done. So he's saying, this Jesus who died and died in our place and was raised victoriously and now lives forevermore, this king of glory forgives. There's forgiveness in his name. And so he kind of just puts things together. He kind of like, You know, if there were three trains, three boxes of trains, and he takes the one in the middle and he removes it. Repent, believe, and be baptized. He takes the one in the middle and he takes it out and he puts them together and, and he assumes it. It's assumed as you talk about, as he talks about things like receiving his word. You see that, verse 41? As they talk about verse 38, forgiven. Or verse 40, save yourselves. Of course, they can't save themselves except to receive salvation. So, repent, believe, trust, 
And Peter's persistent with this, verse 40, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. And they do just what he says. They repent. They believe. They trust. They're now Christians. They follow Jesus. They have forgiveness. They're saved. Do you have this forgiveness? Have you heard this message that Jesus died in your place to take your punishment, to forgive your sin, to reconcile you to the God that you were made to relate to and worship and enjoy and are are estranged from because sin and rebellion? Do you know this Jesus? Would you trust him today? Would you do just what these folks did? Would you sense being cut to the heart and say, what do I do again? And hear Peter say, repent, believe, receive, be saved. Know the forgiveness that's in his name. Christian, praise God afresh for a salvation that comes to you, not by works, but through faith. Hear it again. You're used to it. I know. You're used to the fact Jesus died in your place, and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know it, but preach it to yourself often. Enjoy it more. Grow in apprehending it and applying it in your life. We don't outgrow belief. That's foundation. Foundational to who we are and what we do as Christians. But there's a second B. You might guess it. It's baptism. Belief leads to baptism here. And baptism is like putting on the Jesus jersey, you could say. It's an outward sign that you're on the team. It's showing the world that You play for Jesus. You've switched teams. By his grace, you've been traded. Now, sure, just putting the jersey on doesn't make you on the team. My wife has a Peyton Manning Broncos t-shirt. We can't afford a jersey, so got a t-shirt. But just because she has a Broncos t-shirt that looks like a jersey doesn't mean she plays for the Broncos. Yes, there are plenty of people who've been baptized. They have the sign. They pretended to put on the jersey, but they're not truly in Christ. Some are better at pretending this than others. Sort of like flag football. Some of it's horrible. Some of it's pretty darn good. There's that Mark Wahlberg movie. where That's legit dirty football, right? No pads. And it goes pro. So some people, yeah, pretend like they're in the pros and some are bad at it and some people pretend like they're in Christ and some are good at it and bad at it. But that's not the point. What we want is the real thing. For those who are really and truly in Christ, they're on the team. Putting on the jersey or putting on baptism isn't the sum total of being on the team of the Christian life. No. In the NFL, it's based on a contract, right? That's how you know you're on a team. They pay you. And with Jesus, it's based on a contract or covenant. And it's based on his payment for us and to us, forgiveness of sins, 
That's how we know we're on the team. But those who are on the team like that, those who have that covenant and reap the benefits, the payment in him, should want to wear the jersey. Amen? Why? Well, in part because baptism signifies some beautiful things. What does baptism mean? What does it signify Hopefully you've seen it before. It just simply is going down into the water and coming up out of it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what significance does it have that it would be so monumental, so foundational, so integral to this thing of identifying with Christ? It's belief and then baptism. So here's what it means. It it pictures for one what Jesus did. That he died, he went down into the grave, and, and he lives, he was raised up out of it. But it also pictures our union with his death and his resurrection by us doing the burial and resurrection action. We're saying his death is our death, his resurrection is our resurrection, his life is now ours by grace through faith. Baptism also points to, portrays, pictures, the washing away of sins. Acts 22 says, get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. Now, baptism doesn't really wash away sins. It's just plain old water. It doesn't have any holy properties about it. It doesn't have any internal cleansing action to it. But... It signifies what has already happened in the heart where God in Christ by his blood has washed our sins away. He has cleansed our filthy garments and made them white as snow. Baptism also pictures our own spiritual death and resurrection. We used to serve self and sin and Satan, but we have had that That old self crucified, Paul says, and there's a a new one that now is raised up in him. So Paul says in Romans 6, 4, We were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism portrays Romans 6, 4, that coming to Jesus means a death and a resurrection has taken place. Or what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or you must be born from above. There must be new life. If any man's in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. That's what baptism signifies in part. But in short, it publicly demonstrates our identity with and our allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King, as God, Messiah, and Savior. In many cultures, of course in first century times, and in other parts of the world today, baptism was the fork in the road that so publicly identified you with the Christian path that it could mean parents disown you, or worse, they kill you. Baptism is God's ordained way in which Christians publicly and officially 
identify with Christ. It's, it's the Christian, dare we say, coming out of the closet. That's what baptism is. It's coming out of the closet as a Christian. We come out of the closet as Christians not by going forward at the end of a church service. We identify officially and overtly with Christ not by raising a hand or by signing a card in an evangelistic meeting, not by putting a Jesus fish on your bumper, or by changing your Facebook status to Christian. The way Christians say that they're Christians to the world for the first time, officially and overtly, is with baptism. As you comb through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, There are simply no examples of Christians who aren't baptized. Oh, I know, there's the thief on the cross. But let's just say that that's a little unusual of a situation, right? He kind of couldn't get baptized, could he? So if you believe on your deathbed, then yes, you don't need baptism, you... You don't have to be baptized. It it probably wouldn't be brought up if if I was the one that got to lead you to the Lord on your deathbed. And you're really sick, and we're not going to talk baptism. We're going to talk about heaven. But, but otherwise, in the New Testament, baptism's just assumed. Paul's letters and Peter's letters, they just talk about your baptism as he writes to Christians. They say, as you were all baptized into Jesus, and then it goes on from there. It doesn't say, I know some of you were baptized, so you'll know what I'm about to talk about. It's just assumed. You're Christians, you were baptized. Let's just flip through Acts and find some more examples of this. In addition to Acts 2, verse 41, which we saw, repent and be baptized. Those who received the word were baptized, it says. Now look at Acts 8, verse 12. We'll pick up in the middle where it just says, when they believed Philip, one of the deacons, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. Belief, then baptism. In that order, and they go together. Look at verse 36. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's now saved. He's a Christian. He believes, and as they're going down the road in his chariot, he says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And they get out of the chariot, and he's baptized. Acts 10, look at verse 48. There, Peter, it says, commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Commanded. Oh, that seems a little harsh. Shouldn't that say invited? No, commanded. He commanded them. And he could because the Lord Jesus gave him the command to go and make disciples, baptizing them. That's Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, part of being a disciple is baptism. Just like part of being a disciple is being taught, learning, growing, being more like, shaped into 
our master. Look at Acts 16. There it says of Lydia. She's a new convert. It says the Lord opened her heart. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to receive what was said by Paul and after she was baptized. Or Acts 18, verse 8. In the middle there, at the end, it says, Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Or 19.5, hearing this, they were baptized. It's just a given. Belief, then baptism. So why be baptized? It's commanded. It's simply what Christians do. It's a beautiful picture. It's a drama, if you like. And it pictures the greatest thing in all the world. It pictures to the world that the greatest thing in all the world is ours. It's a coming out party. And so it's a celebration. And just to clarify, in case I haven't stressed this enough, let me stress, baptism doesn't save. Only Jesus saves Baptism is a God-given, God-commanded picture of what saves. Jesus saves, his death and resurrection. Baptism only outwardly proclaims and portrays what is our only hope, what is our chief identity, what is our life and our new life. So in that sense, it's putting the jersey on, isn't it? It's putting the jersey on. And Christians should want to wear the jersey. And I'm sure some of you are still asking the question, though. You're, you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but can I want to be on the team and not wear the jersey? Can I, can I do that? Can I play ball without the jersey? Or can I be a Christian and not do the baptism thing? It's asking the wrong question, isn't it? I I don't want to answer it. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, be alarmed. It's asking the wrong question. It's kind of like saying, Mom, can I punch Grandma in the face and still be in the family? You ask that to Mom and she's going to say, What's wrong with you? Who raised you? Why would you even think that? I can't believe you'd ask that. I'm not answering that. Or let's change the analogy to a wedding ring. Wearing a wedding ring doesn't make someone married. It's possible to have the sign and not the reality. I I could have put a a ring on this finger when I was 14. And it might look like I'm married. I doubt it. I doubt it would look like I'm married at 14. No one would buy that. But you can have a ring on that finger and still not be married. But you know, I'm real glad my wife wears her ring. Could you imagine being a few months into marriage and the ring hasn't gone on? I mean, there was the ceremony, then it went somewhere, and you haven't seen it. You don't see it on her hand. You ask her about it, and she says, Oh, yeah, I just keep forgetting to put it on. Sorry. Or... Yeah, I'm really not used to it yet. It just kind of feels weird on my hand. I'm, I'm not used to a ring. Uh, something's wrong there, isn't there? So how about you? Where are you 
What do you need to do? Do you need to believe? Then believe and be baptized. Do you, believer, need to be baptized? Obey the Lord in this. Don't treat it as optional. Don't keep the wedding ring in the, dress, in the dresser and think that everything's okay. Do you partake of the Lord's Supper and you haven't been baptized? Why? Kind of the same thing, aren't they? They kind of go together. And I would say, parents, it'd be good for you to be consistent with that as well. Some of you hold off on baptism with your children. In my opinion, you probably should hold off on the Lord's Supper as well. One is for believers. The other one is for believers. Maybe you were baptized as a young child. You thought you were a Christian then. And now you know that later in life is when the Lord changed your heart and gave you faith and you know you need to be baptized because you weren't baptized then. It didn't represent what was in the heart. It didn't follow belief like it should. Don't hold back. Be baptized. It's a commandment. Be baptized. And don't be shy about it. I hear that a lot. Well, I'm just kind of shy. Either shy to be up in front of people. I understand that. I mean, even though I do public speaking, I can be shy in front of people. But we shouldn't be shy about publicly identifying with Christ. Maybe you're shy because you've waited so long. Well, you need double repentance then. Repentance for waiting. And repentance for being shy. Baptism is a declaration. It's part of us being his witnesses. It's part of our obedience to him. So maybe, maybe you're instead someone who's been baptized and you know you need to nudge a friend. Maybe right now you're elbowing somebody. Maybe you need to nudge a spouse about getting baptized. Or maybe you just need to think on it more. Maybe we all need to live in light of it better. That's baptism. The third B is belonging. Belonging. Look at Acts 2, uh, 2.41 again. To those who received his word or believed his word, were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Added to what? Well, added to a group. Added to the church. They belong. And then the rest of the chapter talks about what that belonging looks like. It talks about what their life together looks like. They've joined themselves to Christ in belief. They've portrayed that in baptism. But they also joined themselves to Christ's body, the church, to a Christian community. So like baptism, church membership is like putting on the jersey. Now, I know the, the analogy is getting messy because now we're talking about two jerseys. And you, know, you only wear one jersey when you play a sport. Bear with me, I know. But hopefully you get the point that both baptism and membership are public, overt, tangible identifications with the Jesus team, kind of like a jersey is for an athlete. In the words of Mark Dever's latest book, both baptism and membership make the gospel visible. Make the gospel visible to the world. Now let me clarify a couple of things. 
Let me clarify that when I equate belonging with church membership, I don't mean to say that if you're not a member here, you're not welcome here. I don't mean to say if you're not a Christian that you're not welcome here. I don't mean you don't belong here like you don't belong, men, in the women's restroom. You really don't belong there. You can't go there. You'll get in trouble for going there. I don't mean that as I talk about the church. But there is a kind of belonging, a partnering, covenanting together. And here's the second thing I need to clarify is just what I mean by membership. I'd put it like this. It is consciously and overtly identifying oneself with a local body of believers like this who are committed to care for each other by meeting together, doing what Jesus said, and holding each other accountable to do it. I think that's what membership means. Now, the word membership isn't in the Bible. The word member is. So let me try to defend this from Scripture, this thing of formal church membership. Some of you come from church backgrounds. I was a part of a church once. It didn't have formal church membership for a while there in my Christian life. I didn't believe that it was biblical. Uh, I was at a small church, so conveniently you kind of do the same thing anyway because you know who's in and who's out and who's, who's committed to this and who isn't. But, yes, in Scripture I admit, we're not given a lot of specifics. I understand that The word membership isn't in the Bible, and I I understand that we aren't given specifics for how to handle who's in or how they get in or whether we write them down or whether we keep tabs on uh, on them in these ways or those ways. But something official and overt seems unavoidable to me when you put all of the New Testament puzzle pieces together. So let me try to put them together. I, I won't number these, but I think there are about 19 puzzle pieces here quickly. One puzzle piece would be the words join and added in the book of Acts. When people are saved, we already saw that Acts 2.41, they're baptized and they're added. About 3,000 souls, it says. Or look over at Acts 5. Here's one that puts a little bit more contour to this thing of joining and not joining. Acts 5, verse 12, this is right after Ananias and Sapphira, two people in the church, lied about how much they gave to the church, and God struck them dead. Just boom, that's it. Then it says, verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So whoever these people are, the people around them, they're people who are close enough to see them. They're seeing them do church. They're seeing them live out church and being the church. But none of them dared join them. None of them dared join this whole thing. It doesn't just mean membership, like they were Christians, but they didn't commit to membership because that's too serious. It means this whole Jesus thing is interesting. We, We got them in high esteem. And yet, this is a little bit scary. They just lied about giving and God killed them. And so, there's caution. They dared not join them. And yet, look at the rest of the verse. And 
more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women. So conversion in Acts, becoming a Christian in the book of Acts, is not unrelated to this thing of joining or being added or identifying with the people. There's a sense in which conversion, becoming a Christian, is vertical. So I believe in Jesus who died in my place and I'm forgiven. That's between me and God. In some ways, that's like just a tunnel, right? Me and God, what Jesus did for me. I can do that alone. I can pray to receive that alone. In another sense, in the book of Acts, there's something very horizontal about joining them. Not just joining him. Not just getting forgiveness. Not just believing in Jesus, but joining them. They couldn't imagine separating the two. Nor should they have. Jesus said, whatever you've done to the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me. Jesus said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute? Why do you persecute me? Not my church, but me. Another puzzle piece is the word church. Very word means assembly. So I'll give you some short verses here. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is what Christians do. A church assembles. The very word church means gather, group, get together. They assemble. 1 Corinthians 14. If the whole church comes together, how do you know the whole church comes together unless you know who the church is and what the church is? So it's an identifiable group. Matthew 18 says that if your brother sins against you, you should first alone go and tell him his fault. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two along with you. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Like what? Take out an ad in Christianity Today? To send a letter to every local church in Albuquerque? No, tell it to the church. Tell it to his church. They apparently kept track of numbers in the book of Acts. 3,000 were added in Acts 2. It's now up to 5,000 by Acts 5. That's hard counting. They didn't even have those clickers back then. In 1 Timothy 5, there's an official list of widows that's referred to. Listen to this. This is interesting. 1 Timothy 5, 9. Let a widow be enrolled. Put on a list. If she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and it goes on from there and gives more litmus tests of what kind of ladies get put on this widow role. Now, my point is not to chase the rabbit of what widows are in the book of 1 Timothy or how the church cares for them or why there's a list and why there's criteria and why some widows who are, um, you know, too young don't get this kind of care... Put all that aside, there's a list. There's a list of widows. And if there's a list of widows, where are they getting that list from? What's the pool that they're drawing from? You'd think there has to be some kind of official enrollment in the church in general. Think of the word pictures that are used about the church in the New Testament. That the church is like a building made up of little stones. Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 both say that you are like a block, a cinder block. And what do cinder blocks do? 
nothing except, except make walls. That's what they're for. They get stacked on top of one another. And sometimes you don't just make a wall for your backyard, but you make a building with it. And Paul says, so does Peter, Christians are supposed to go together. They're supposed to go together to be a dwelling place for God. That implies something of pairing up, being on top of each other, being close to one another, having some mix and mortar in between. The church is like a building. The church is like a body. Romans 12 says that there's one body, but there are many members. They're all connected, though. So his body picture is not the church, what we call the church universal. He's not talking about Christians everywhere. He's talking about the local church, the local body, like the church at Rome, like those churches, the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, like Desert Springs Church, like Hope Evangelical Free Church in Albuquerque. These are bodies, and each person in those bodies serves its own purpose. They have their own identity, like a hand or an eye or an ear. They have their own purpose. But that purpose and that identity is part of a whole. It serves the body. It's connected to the body. Paul doesn't just say that we're a box full of random body parts. Like the, the hand in the Adams family, the, was it the Adams family, the Munsters. There was a hand that ran around like this. Some of us think that that's what the church is like. Yeah, I'm a hand. Can I just run around? No, a detached hand doesn't work. It did in the Adams family, and that's why it was weird. <laughs> the church is like a body, not a loose affiliation of body parts. No one says. I'm a member of my local grocery store. If you heard that, you'd say, well, what do you mean? Like the little, little tag on your, on your key ring so you get a discount at Smith's? They'd say, no, no, I, I don't mean that. I just go there a lot. Or if they said, I'm a member of Cinemark Theater. Like, what, is there like a discount program where if you go a lot, you can you know, pay less? No, I just go a lot. Well, you're not a member then. You, you just got a movie addiction. Right? That's it. You're just trying to dress it up with something more fancy. Church is a body, and we are members. So we shouldn't be shy about talking about membership. The church is like a family, and there are brothers and sisters. The Bible talks about us in Christ being brothers and sisters, not fourth and fifth cousins. The church is like a flock, a flock of sheep. It's under the care of the capital S, Shepherd, but it's also under the care of shepherds. Remember Jesus said, I know my sheep by name. You say, well, yeah, well, you don't know my name. I, I may not, but, but Jesus is better at memorizing names than I am. And in a church like this, a church this size, our elders oversee those who hopefully do know you well, not just know your name, but know you. Jesus said, I know my sheep and they hear my voice. Doesn't that imply something of a pen? Sheep, we know them. We're tracking them. We're keeping them in. We're protecting them. It's not sheep coming and going. 
The church is also supposed to have leaders, we're told in Hebrews 13, who will give an account for specific souls. Listen to this. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I assume I don't give an account for you in this sense if you're not a member at Desert Springs Church. You can come, you can attend. I assume that our elders will not give an account for Christianity in general in Albuquerque. Not in this Hebrews 13, 17 sense. We will give an account for those who have covenanted with us like the Bible talks about. This overtly, officially joining yourself to a body of believers and its leadership. You know, when this happens, it means there will be diversity in the church. You will have relationships not based on your preferences, not based on similar likes. I saw an old Mr. Monk the other day. You know that show? My kids are liking that right now, and I am too. I feel less... OCD when I watch Mr. Monk. Um, but they, they realized that this mass of people that had been murdered was so diverse, it was impossible for it to be random, and so it must be that they were on a jury together. Sure enough, they were. And I thought, yeah, the only other place where it's that random, where it's that different, is the church. Rich, poor, White, black, Hispanic, Asian. You know, you live there, you live here. It it doesn't matter. There's diversity. And that's a picture of the gospel. We need it. That means that it pushes against a self-focus. Membership in a church pushes against self-focus. All about me, all about my needs. It also pushes against self-sufficiency. I can do it. I don't need that. I, I could use the sermon, but I could do without the singing. I don't need it. Or vice versa, depending on whether you like Drew or Ryan better. It avoids buffeting our spiritual lives when we're committed to a body with both feet. Because it's easy to think, well, I'll do that. Not that. I'll do that. Not that. I'll come in for the sermon. I'm not going to show up before. Membership pushes against consumerism. We all have that bent within us because we live in a consumeristic culture. It's in our language. I say all the time, I'm going to church. We're going to church. We don't go to church. I know better than that. We don't go to church. We are the church. We meet together as a church. It's all about us. So we try it out, and then we take it or leave it. Try that, take it or leave it. Eventually, if it gets bad enough, you change, like you would change grocery stores. American Express says membership has its privileges. True. But in the New Testament, membership also has its responsibilities. Matt Chandler wrote some time ago, when a church is just a place that you attend without ever joining, like an ecclesiological buffet you just might consider whether you're always leaving a church just as your heart begins to be exposed and the real work is beginning to happen. Hmm. I know several families in Albuquerque 
that have gone from that church to that church to that church to our church to that church to that church, and they've left over basically the same reason. And as something gets confronted, they leave. You know, committing ourselves to a body and sticking with it helps us know that we're truly born again. It's part of what it means to evidence faith. Mark Dever said this, Do you really want to know that your new life is real? Commit yourself to a local body of saved sinners and love them. Don't just do it for three weeks or six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out, and others will too, whether you love God. The truth, if you love God, you will also love his people, will show itself. So this relates to this. Membership is in part, so we show the world that we're his. Because Jesus said in John 13, By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And if we just decide to love a little bit there, love a little bit there, love a little bit there, love on these conditions, go there, don't give up on that. Well, that's exactly how the world loves. There's nothing supernatural about that. So, we care about what the world thinks about all this, and we commit ourselves for the sake of others around us, for our family members who aren't yet Christians. We stick with this thing. And so much of Christianity is horizontal. Let's not forget that. The playbook assumes teammates. The playbook assumes teammates. Oh, I could go almost anywhere in the New Testament to show you this, but just think of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, what do these look like on a deserted island when you don't even have a dog to be nice to? Don't these just assume you're going to be gentle to someone, not just gentle in your prayer closet? Don't these assume that you're going to be kind to someone, faithful to someone, patient with someone, peaceful with someone? No, we commit ourselves to each other because we need accountability, because we don't do so well with the fruit of the Spirit at times, and we need those who will say, I don't see love here, brother. This doesn't seem peaceable to me here, sister. We need accountability. And simply put, we need to know who will do all this with us and for us. We need some way to get an arm raised. I don't mean that literally, but we need to know who's in. So, so you in? You in? Put the jersey on. We need to know who's in partnership with us. Who's consciously and overtly identifying themselves with a local body, with this local body of believers who are committed to care for each other by meeting together, doing what Jesus told us to do, and holding each other accountable to do it. Now, at Desert Springs Church, this means a membership class called Knowing Christ, Knowing the Church, coming up on Wednesday nights. At the end of that, it means meeting with one of our leaders and sharing your testimony uh, what the gospel is, that sort of thing, and then signing a covenant of fellowship. And I know each of those aren't explicit in the book of Acts. But it's our way of trying to figure out how to take what's in the book of Acts and put it in concrete terms in a church this size in the 21st century where people can sue you 
uh, when they don't like what you do eventually. So people have to sign. Now, in a smaller church, maybe you could get away with knowing who's in and who's out. Maybe you could get away with less formality than what we have here. Maybe. But however it's packaged, it's not the point. The core, according to the New Testament, is that Christians officially and overtly partner together to be the church and to do what Christ commands. What does Christ command? What do they do? Well, that's next week. But what about this week? How are, where are you? What do you need to do? Do you need to believe today? To receive forgiveness? To come to Christ? To call on his name to repent of your sins, to trust in his death and righteousness on your behalf? Do you need to be baptized to identify yourself with that glorious picture of the greatest thing in the world that Jesus died in our place and yet still lives? Do you need to join to officially and overtly commit to this body? Finding a new church can be something like dating before marriage, right? You're trying it out, you're seeing if it fits, you're seeing if it's a good fit. But you shouldn't date a girl for multiple years, and not get married. And you shouldn't do that with a church either. So you might be dating too long. Maybe you just need to go on to another church. It would be a better fit. I say that in love to you. Don't delay. Just go do it. Maybe you need to go back to the church you just left because you didn't leave for good reasons. You left because something got pushed and you didn't like it and you left. By God's grace, I hope it gets pushed here. Or go back and deal with it. You need to just live out your membership more strategically and more overtly. Maybe that means coming more faithfully on Sunday morning. Maybe it means joining a community group where these things we're talking about and we'll talk about next week uh, are facilitated best, at least in our church. Community group. Maybe you can join a community group. Or maybe you just need to grow in your patience and your love for Christ's body, the church.